I just want you to know at the outset, my personal goal this morning is to keep the teenagers awake. It's not usually a, a thing, but today it's, gonna, today it's what I'm working on. It's not, not my only goal. It's not even my highest goal, but I am going to be checking in with you guys just to make sure you're still with us. I understand y'all didn't sleep a lot. That's your own fault. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll be checking in with you, making sure you're still awake. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a cold day just like this one on a Sunday morning. And when church was over, as always, we were some of the last ones to leave and my family kind of gathered in the atrium, and like we do every week, we discussed, okay, who's going to ride with who? Because Carrie and I bring two different cars to church, because I'm here all morning, and she comes for the life group hour and on. And so uh, my daughter was still here at that point, and so they were talking about who was going to ride with who, and I said, well, why don't y'all both ride with mom? Because if I was them, I'd want to ride with mom too, and that, that makes sense. And so I went out to my car, and I got in out there in the parking garage, and I cranked it up, and I was just about to throw it in reverse, and all of a sudden, I see in the rearview mirror both my kids running at a dead sprint straight for me. And I'm, I, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I, I, just, I watch them as they run, and they're, they're neck and neck, and they get there right at the same time. And even though Kaylee's older, Will's bigger and stronger, and so he just kind of shoves her out of the way and jumps in and locks the door. Now, don't worry. They were both laughing. Nobody got hurt. And I said, wow, y'all really wanted to ride with me. And he said, yeah, you got the heated seats. <laughs> Nothing like honesty, right? So, you know, the, the dad bubble kind of burst, and I went back to where I belong. But it just shows you what you can accomplish when you have a goal. The motivation that comes about when you're like, I know what I want. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. So we're talking about how life, all of life should be that way. We should have a purpose for living. We do have a purpose. It's just that most of us don't live for it. God made you for a reason. Last week, we studied Psalm 139. It talks about how God knit us together in our mother's womb, and he saw every day we would have before we were ever even born. And you are special. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And today, we're going to talk more about how you can find your purpose, the reason why you exist, the reason why you are even on this earth. So I'm going to start with Ephesians 2.10. This is what we're going to look at today. And if you, had, if you ask me, what is your favorite verse in the whole Bible? If I had to choose one, sort of like choosing your favorite child, but if I had to choose one, it's this one right here, Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works which He prepared ahead of time. Now, let me just give you a warning. If you're younger than me, especially if you're in your teens or your early 20s, you're probably coming at this from the same angle I was when I was your age, which is a very idealistic mindset. I was a very idealistic young guy. I was convinced that I was destined for greatness. Now, I believed that God made every person in His image, every person He created special. I just kind of thought that He made me a little extra special. And I don't mean that I was arrogant. I don't think I was. I just, I just was convinced God had something great in mind for me. I was going to live a blessed life. I just thought that once I found God's plan for my life and I followed it, that would mean I was going to choose the right career and I was going to be very successful in that career. People would know my name. People would, would look up to me. And I was going to marry the right person and we were going to have a perfect marriage. There were not going to be any problems. We were going to have 2.5 Stepford children. They were just going to be fantastic and have no issues. My whole life was just going to be picture perfect. 
because that's how God's plan is. And I want to say this to you, not to burst any kind of bubbles, not to, not to make you cynical, because if you're idealistic, I want you to stay that way. That's a good way to be. But I want you to hear me now. Your, God's purpose for you in life may have little or nothing to do with what you do for a living. Your career and God's purpose aren't necessarily the same thing. I know some people who get paid to do what God has called them to do. I'm one of those fortunate ones, but those are very few. Most people I know, most devout Christians who are living out God's purpose, they do something for a living. They do something to pay the bills and support their families. And they do it to God's glory, but their real purpose, what makes their heart beat faster, what glorifies God in their life more than anything else, is something outside of work. So I'm telling you, your purpose in life may be something that you don't get paid to do. And when it comes to marriage, I believe God loves marriage. I'm grateful for the wife I've been given and, and for what we've built over 25 and a half years. Um, I'm thankful for our kids. And God gave us those, and God blesses marriage and families but that's not what your purpose in life is either. Hear me, especially young, you young women. Your purpose in life is not to find Mr. Right, okay? You are not complete when he comes along. You're complete right now, okay? And whether you get married or not, and young men, you hear this too, singles of all ages, whether you get married or not is not a determining factor in whether you can live out God's purpose for you. God's purpose is for you, not for whoever's on that picture on your Christmas card, okay? It's for you. Now, some of you are coming today and you hear this topic and you hear it from a completely different angle. You may say to me, I was once young and idealistic too, and then life kicked me in the head a few too many times and I don't have any of that anymore. And some of you would say, well, you know, I'm just, I've gotten to an age where I just don't think about such things anymore. Your purpose in life is something for young people. I've, I've already done all that and I'm just sort of waiting around biding time for heaven. And others still might say, I just don't think that I'm that important. You haven't seen the kind of mistakes I've made. You haven't seen the kind of ugliness that's inside of me. There's no way God has a purpose for me. And I say to all of you, look again at verse 10. You are God's handiwork. And that's an amazing word, that word that's translated in the NIV, handiwork, because the word that Paul actually used when he wrote this in Greek was pronounced poema, P-O-E-I-M-A. And it kind of sounds like poem. And there's a reason for that because it is the Greek word for work of art. It's the Greek word for masterpiece. If you know any artists, if you know any graphic artists, any uh, writers, any musicians, if you know anyone who creates, you know that it's a very meticulous process. It takes time. It takes care. And everything they produce is different. And they put a little of their soul into each one. And that's what God did for you. Remember again, last week, Psalm 139, God knit you in his mother's womb in your mother's womb. And so that meticulous crafting, God did that for you. But why? You're His work of art and you may say, well, I don't think I'm a work of art. I don't look like a work of art. It has nothing to do with how you look and it has nothing to do with how others see you. It says, for you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. That means that before you were born, God knew every day you were ever going to live. Again, like we, like we studied last week, and he knew every day there's going to be some kind of opportunity, usually more than one, to bless someone, to make a difference in someone's life, to make a difference in God's work, to make a difference in the world. God is going to give you an opportunity every day of your life, some kind of divine appointment. And he created you for the opportunities he knew you would have. 
That means that if I tried to step into your shoes and fulfill the purpose God created you for and do your good deeds, I wouldn't do them as well as you can. Just like you can't do mine as well as I can. You are unique. You are special. You are important. And as long as you got breath in your lungs, there's still a reason why you're alive. Third, there are people here who would come and say, I just, I come to this with a sense of fear. I, I love God. I'm glad He loves me. But I'm worried that if I, if I give myself totally to Him and I try to live out my, His purpose for me, I'm going to end up being a preacher or a missionary. And I don't want to do one of those things. And I understand. If I wasn't called to this, I would hate this job. But I love it because this is my calling. And that's my point. God knows you. God loves you. Ask yourself this question. And, and seriously, I want some kind of response from you. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh dying on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that? Okay. Is there any way anybody can love you more than that? Now, if someone loves you that much, if God loves you that much, why would you ever think that that kind of God who loves you that much would give you a purpose for your life that you're going to hate? That's the work of an evil God. That's the work of a God who's like a perpetual seventh grade moron, okay? Who just says, I'm going to be mean to this guy just to watch him squirm. That's not God. So that means that, that God loves you enough that He's designed something for you, that when you find it, when you do it, you're going to love it. You're going you're to say, this is what I was made to do. It's going to be what you love doing more than anything else. It's going to be something you love so much you'd do it even if it was illegal. All right, teenagers, y'all with me? Y'all still with me? Okay, clap once. Clap once. All right, there you go. All right, okay, so how do we find out what our purpose is? And that's where the Word of God comes in. Let's go back to verse 1 in chapter 2. I want to I give you the background of why verse 10 is there. So verse 1, this is a great chapter of the Bible. You can, you, we could spend weeks in this, but verse 1 says, As for you, that's you and me, as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now this is an outrageously controversial thing to say in our culture today. Probably always has been, but especially today. And that is this, this consistent teaching of Scripture is that you cannot do it on your own. That you're not good enough. Now, I've just told you you were created specially in Christ Jesus. You're a wonderful person. You're in the image of God. But I'm telling you, you're also a sinner. And, and guess what? I'm a sinner. You, you called a sinner to be your pastor. Your best friend. Your mom. Your dad. Billy Graham. Mother Teresa when she was still here. Your sainted grandmother. All of them sinners. And you can't do it. Doesn't matter how often you go to church, doesn't matter how much of the Bible you memorize, doesn't matter how much money you donate, how many good deeds you do, how much, how hard you try to be good. You cannot do it. And that's why verse four is so important. Verse four, when it comes up on the screen, y'all tell me, what is the first word in verse four? But that is a beautiful, beautiful conjunction right there. Because for three verses, Paul has been telling us, you can't do it. You're hopeless. You have no chance at salvation, at forgiveness, at eternal life, at wholeness. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our transgressions. You may remember this if, if you've read the Bible before or you've been in Sunday school. Jesus one day met one of the religious leaders of Israel, a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night because he didn't want anybody to see him. Nicodemus was 
Spiritually speaking, a superstar. Religiously speaking, he was a celebrity. Everyone in Israel would have known his name. They looked up to him. Mothers wanted their kids to grow up to be him. He comes to Jesus and says, okay, it seems to me you've got something I don't. Can you help me out with this? And Jesus, first thing he says to him is, you can't do it. You have to be born again. You can't, Nicodemus is not good enough. You have to die and become someone new. And Nicodemus says, but that's impossible. And you know what? He's absolutely right. It is impossible. No one of us can recreate ourselves. It would be a lost cause except for those two words in verse 4, in Christ. In Christ. Because what that says is that when Jesus died on the cross, our sin died too. Our old self died too. The part of us that wasn't good enough died too. And then when Jesus rose again, once we accept him, we gain his new life. And we're made new. The old has passed away, the behold, the new has come. By the way, in case you're wondering, that's why we baptize. That's why we baptize by immersion. Because immersion symbolizes the fact that if you're in Christ, the old you is now dead and buried. And there's a new you. And you just thought that was magic water. It's not. It's plain old water. It's a symbol of something beautiful. And that's why every time I baptize, I quote from Romans 6, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. So then we get to verses 8 and 9. And these are the two most famous verses in all of Ephesians. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You Notice how Paul is so meticulous in his wording there. He wants to make sure no one misunderstands what the gospel is. It's not about who can obey the rules the best. Because let's face it, can we admit some people are just born rule keepers? I'm that way. My wife is that way. Some of my best friends are not. Some people are good at following rules. Other people, it's a little harder. It's a good thing. That's not what it comes down to. Because even those of us who are great rule keepers can't do it. See, I look at it this way. Imagine you are in a plane crash on a deserted island, and the only survivors are you and Michael Phelps, you know, the Olympic swimmer, and a guy with one arm. And the three of you say to yourselves, we're not going to starve to death on this island. Let's, let's make a break for it. I think we can swim. If we swim really hard, we can make it to the mainland. Let's go. And so you dive into the surf, all three of you, and you begin swimming. And you're swimming your heart out and you're swimming with all you've got and all of a sudden you realize my lungs are burning and my muscles are cramped and I can't go any further and you're going to die. And you're going down for the last time and you feel this, this iron hand grab your wrist and pull you up out of the water and you look up and here's a Coast Guard guy hanging from a cable, hanging from a helicopter. They pull you into the chopper and there inside the chopper is the one-armed guy. They picked him up already. And they fly a little bit further and they find Michael Phelps, you know, going down for the last time just like you were. They rescue him, and they take the three of you to a Coast Guard boat. They put you on there, and together you steam or sail or whatever Coast Guard boats do. You float to the mainland, which takes days. And when you get there, you think to yourself, I couldn't have done this on my own. You don't go over to the one-armed guy and say, boy, I sure outswam you. Michael Phelps doesn't say, check out my abs. I can swim way better than you. All three of you are saying the same thing. It's a good thing those Coast Guard guys came along when they did, or we would have been lost. 
And once you experience the grace of God, once you find out exactly how sinful you are and how righteous He is, and what it took for Him to come down here and rescue you, you don't You no longer say, if you're a believer in Christ and you've tasted His grace, there's nothing else left in you that says, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm a lot better than that guy. There's nothing in you that looks down on others because maybe they use language you don't use or they they do certain activities that you don't do or, or maybe because they don't do some of the things that you do. You don't do that anymore. And you also don't look at other people who are better than you and say, well, he's he's so much better than me. Because you realize the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And it took just as much grace to save him as it does to save you. That's what verses 8 and 9 are about. And we've heard all of this, haven't we? If you've been in church most of your life, if you've been saved for longer than a year, you've heard this before. But, y'all with me teenagers? You awake? Got it? All right. So, but, you've heard it often in the wrong form. You've heard it said something like this. Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, and you'll go to heaven when you die. Right? That's what we're told. And by the way, that's true, but that's far from all there is to it. Remember what we said last week. When Jesus was here in the flesh, Jesus didn't walk around saying, by the way, everybody, I'm the Savior of the world, so just pray a little prayer, and you'll go to heaven when you die. He never said that to anybody. Instead, he said things like, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Follow me. It's going to be costly, but follow me, and we'll change the world. And people did. And that's why there's verse 10. Because what verse 10 is in there to say is, God did not send His Son to die for you just so that you wouldn't have to go to hell. God sent His Son to die for you because you were made for a purpose. And God wants you to be able to live out that purpose. He wants your life right now to count. That's why He didn't zap you to heaven the moment you accepted Christ as your Savior. You've got work to do. You have a purpose here. That's why it says in verse 10 that we were created in Christ Jesus. God didn't just make you in your mother's womb for a purpose. He also redeemed you for a purpose. That's how important you are. That's how important the work is that you're put here to do. That Jesus would die so you'd be able to do it. So what are these good works? Again, let me just say, in case you missed it, I'm not talking about your career choice. I'm not talking about who you're going to marry. The next two weeks, we're going to talk about how to make decisions like that. So I hope you'll come back because I know some of you are worried about decisions just like that. We're going to talk about how to hear God's voice and know His will. But what I'm talking about today is there are specific good works that He made you to do. Only you. No one else can do them in the way you can. So how do you find those? How do you make sure you don't miss those opportunities? How do you make sure that someday when you're on your deathbed, you look back and you say, I didn't live a perfect life, but I lived a life that made a difference. And I don't have regrets. I've just got joys. How do you you know that when you get to heaven, you're not just going to be there saying, well, I'm thankful I'm here by the grace of God, but I've got nothing to show for my earthly life. And instead, you're surrounded by the fruits of what you've done and, and the people you blessed. How do you do that? Well, the short answer is this. You do it by following Jesus. You do that by by devoting yourself to His Word and to prayer and just to saying, you know, I just want to know Him better. And you go to church and you become part of the body of Christ and you serve Him and and you look for opportunities to do good deeds in His name. That's the short answer. But I, I know that if you're like me, you need a little more coaching. 
So I want to give you a series of questions to ask. And you may want to write these down because this is a good way to kind of give yourself a self-inventory. Here's some questions to ask yourself to find out what your purpose in life is. Question number one, what am I good at? What are my skills? What are my interests? What are my passions? And when I say, what am I good at, by the way, I mean, what am I good at that others have recognized in me? Because it's easy for somebody to say, well, I think I'm good at preaching the gospel. But if nobody wants to hear you, you're probably not called to be a preacher. If you, anybody can say, I think I'm a natural born leader, but is anybody actually following you? Because if not, you're just out for a walk, okay? What skills do you have that others have said, hey, you're really good at that. Hey, that, I, I really like watching you do this or experiencing you do this. What are your skills? What are your interests? What are your passions? Number two, question number two, how can I use those skills to bless others and show them his love? Because here's what I want you to know. Whatever your purpose in life is, whatever your purpose in life is, it's not watching videos on YouTube. It's not eating chocolate. It's not buying stuff at flea markets. It's not shooting deer and catching bass. All those things are fine. It's not watching football as much as I love that. That's not your purpose. You can do those things to relax, but that's not why you're here. Whatever you're here to do, it's going to bless others and bring glory to God. Whatever you're here to do, it's going to help people's lives. It's going to make the world a better place. So what is, how can you use the skills God has given you, the things that you're just naturally good at and enjoy, how can you use those things in a way that glorifies God and helps others? Third question, who has God brought into my life? Who are the people that I know, my family, my friends, my coworkers, my fellow students, my neighbors, my acquaintances, the person who cuts my hair, the, the lady at the, at the restaurant who checks me out whenever I bring my check up. I, who are the people I know? Make a list of all the people you know and then ask the question, how can I help each one of them know his love in a personal way? I mean, really, if you had the time and the bandwidth and you could personally touch each one of those lives, what would it take based on what you know of them? What would they really appreciate? And then the next question, what are the needs I see in my church and my community? I always tell people who say, well, I don't know what my ministry is. I always say, well, go volunteer for something. We need people in the nursery. We need people in children's ministry. We need people in student ministry. We need people uh, to visit homebound folks. We need people to visit folks in the hospital. We need all kinds of things here in this church. There's needs in our community that you can see for yourself. And instead of saying, somebody ought to do something about this, what's up with our city council, step up and do it yourself. Volunteer for a local organization. And you might find that you're not good at some of this stuff. When, when Carrie and I were engaged to be married, we taught a, a Sunday school class of two-year-olds. And I thought it was like for half a year. Carrie said it was six weeks. I learned right then, I am not made for preschool ministry. In fact, that, that's one reason why we were married for five years before we had kids. Uh, that's not my ministry. You might find some things like that. But you'll find some things that you're really good at. And then you'll find some things that you're incredible at. That you just shine. And when you do those things, you feel alive. When you do those things, you can see the looks on other people's faces that says, I'm making a difference. And then the last question, how can I help meet those needs in a way that honors him? So again, as you're volunteering, as you're just getting out and doing stuff, you find stuff you're good at, you find 
I can meet these particular needs. I'm passionate about this. I'm good at this. And what i found is once you find whatever that thing is, you'll love it. I, I promise you, I never dreamed growing up that I would be a preacher. That was not even on my radar screen at all. And yet now, I wouldn't want to do anything else. In fact, I don't think I can do anything else. If y'all ever fire me, you're going to have to take care of Carrie and the kids, okay? Because I'm not, I, I don't have any other skills. Whatever God put you on earth to do may end up being a surprise to you, but you're going to love it and you're going to bless others. So let me just give you some examples and then I'm done. Still with me, teenagers? You with me? Wake? I like it. Say amen real loud to that person who's asleep. So I know a guy a good friend of mine who's a brilliant financial planner. That's what he does for a living. He helps people manage their money and he's good at it. He does that work with integrity. He does that with true compassion and care for his clients. But that's not his purpose in life. That's not what he loves. He's a, he's a fantastic musician and he plays the piano in his church and, and that makes that church's worship so much better than it would be otherwise. He's also very intellectually curious, a student uh, uh, who never stops learning, and he's a great communicator, so he teaches the Bible to a, college, a group of college students, and he's fantastic at that. I know a woman who was a stay-at-home mom all through her child-rearing years. She stayed home, raised three kids to adulthood, and they're all fantastic adults who any of you would want as a neighbor or, or a son or daughter-in-law, um, but that's not her full purpose. She also loves reaching out to young married couples. That's, that's where her heart is. And so she mentors them and she prays for them. And she and her husband teach a, a Sunday school class for them. And, and you know, when those, kids, when those young adults get to uh, older adulthood, they start over with a, a fresh group because that's where their heart is. I met a guy once who's a rap artist who produces his own albums and he just, it just burdened him because he was a believer in Christ. Even though he's not a preacher, it burdened him that most of the people he would meet at the concerts where he would rap and, and where he would attend, they weren't believers, you could tell. And so he started a hip-hop church. Guys, this is the understatement of the century. The people he's reaching with his church are not going to be interested in me at all. I just don't have what they're looking for. But he does. There's so many ways that people are fulfilling God's purpose, including some of you. People are adopting kids from third world countries. Other people are fostering at-risk kids right here in America. They're tutoring uh, elementary school kids and blessing teachers at schools that are under-resourced because they're in poor neighborhoods and the parents don't have the time to be involved and so they're filling the gap. Um, they're, they're mentoring teenagers that need somebody to just believe in them and show them a better path. They're working with women who are pregnant in difficult circumstances and helping them make the decision to choose life for their babies and, and showing them how to, to raise that child and giving them the resources so they can get those kids off to a good start. They're supporting people who go through divorce or people who are grieving the loss of a loved one or people who are struggling with mental illness, which, by the way, is about a quarter of our population suffers from mental illness at some point in their lives. They're building houses for people who can't afford them they're doing home repairs and yard work for their elderly neighbors. They're reaching out to people who are of other races so they can build racial unity and, and, and cross those boundaries. They're teaching the gospel in prisons. They're feeding the poor. They're helping, they're helping poor people learn to make better decisions so they can lift themselves out of poverty. They're supporting the efforts of missionaries and foreign pastors to take the gospel to places it's never been before. 
There's people doing all these things and so much more than I can possibly name. And you may say, well, you didn't name anything that sounds good to me. Well, there's something though. God made you for something. And when you find that something and you do that something, it's going to be amazing. And we're going to step back and we're going to watch in wonder. It's going to glorify God. It's going to bring you joy. So here's what I know. And here's what I love. Jesus, Jesus knew his purpose. He knew why he was here. And the Bible doesn't tell us when he figured it out. I figured out my purpose when I was 21, just about to turn 22. I'll tell you that story over the next couple of weeks. The Bible doesn't say, was Jesus a little boy? Was Jesus a, a, a teenager? Was he a young adult? All we know is when he was in his early 30s, he left home and he started teaching and he started healing. And he said, I have come to seek and save the lost. And he said, I didn't come for anybody to serve me. I came to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. That was his purpose. And nobody, nobody liked that idea. Jesus' family hated that idea. They came and tried to take him home because they thought he'd lost his mind. Jesus' best friend Peter, when he heard about his plan, he said, you can't do that. I'm not going to let you die for the sins of humanity. Jesus had plenty of enemies who said, you're a traitor. You're demon-possessed. You're nuts. We don't like you. Go away. But none of it deterred Jesus. And by the way, Jesus was a human just like us. He had the same, the same appetites, the same interests, the same desires. And I'm sure there was a part of him that said, you know, it's so much easier to just stay at home than it is to fulfill my purpose. It's so much easier for me to just do the things that come naturally, come easily, than to get out and do what I was made to do. And yet none of it stopped him. Even when a crowd of people cried, crucify him, crucify him, and he had the power to say, forget you and just blast them all. When soldiers beat him and mocked him and, and when they put nails in his hands and feet, he let it happen. And remember what he said when he died? It is finished. Those were his last words according to the Apostle John. You know what that means? I've done it. I fulfilled my purpose. And that, folks, when you reach that point at the end of this life and you can say, I have done it, it's finished, that's a good thing. That's what you should aim for. And the fact that Jesus knew why he was here, that explains why he was so full of joy in spite of all the things that were heaped upon him. Because you know what? People who wallow in self-pity don't draw a crowd. They repel crowds. Jesus drew people to him because he was full of joy, because he knew why he was alive. He knew why he was here. And by the way, that's why we're saved. If you're saved today, it's because Jesus knew his purpose and he fulfilled it so that you can know your purpose and fulfill it to the glory of God and to your everlasting joy.